and I only get to say this a few more times. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. This week, as I spent time in Mark 15, I was thinking quite a bit about one of my former jobs. As I went through college and then as I went through seminary, I spent about seven or eight years working in a funeral home. And for four of those years, I lived in the funeral home. And I know that just saying that, your, the questions are coming up in your mind. Just write them down. We can get to them later. But as you can imagine, after spending four years living in a funeral home and seven years working in a funeral home, and not a small one, but one that did close to 400 funerals a year, I saw a lot of stuff. I learned a lot of things. I handled hundreds and hundreds of people after their death, helped prepare them for burial. I have been to a lot of burials. But there is no burial that compares to the one that we are going to talk about this morning. This morning, we're going to consider the most significant burial in history, the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as we talk about the work that Christ did for our salvation— We spend a lot of time talking about the cross, as we should. And we spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection, and we should love talking about the resurrection. But we don't talk much about the burial of Christ, do we? And I'm not going to try to spend this morning convincing you or trying to convince you that this has been a massive oversight that we should really give a lot more time to the burial of Christ, that we should sing more songs about, oh, the burial. Compared to his death and what that accomplished, compared to the resurrection and that victory, the burial is a smaller player. But at the same time, we shouldn't overlook the fact that all four Gospels tell us about the burial of Christ. The Holy Spirit ensured that All of the gospel writers wrote this down. Here's another thing. Think about the summary of the work of Christ that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a passage that's probably familiar to most of you. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. As Paul summarizes what Christ did for the work of our salvation, he includes the burial. We see this three-part summary over and over, and it's something that's made its way into all the ancient creeds because the scriptures emphasize it. Those who have written down our faith and tried to systematize it have always included the death, the burial, and the resurrection. They go together. So, of course, as I was thinking about this week, it sent me on a bit of a quest to Think about the significance of the burial. And that's a sermon that I thought I might preach today, but maybe some other time. The title of that sermon, when it comes, will be the significance of the burial of Christ. And that sermon would include things about how the burial confirms that Jesus really died. Proves that this wasn't a a cover-up. He was actually dead. That sermon, not the sermon for today, but that sermon that I'm going to preach some other time, will include a discussion of how 
his burial confirms that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Because his burial is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. That it happened, how it happened, fulfilled the scriptures. It's also a fulfillment of what Jesus had said when Jesus said, I will die and after three days I will rise again. That's another sermon. In that sermon, or maybe one like it, we could talk about Christ's burial and how passages like Romans 6 say, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, the Bible uses the death of Christ as a metaphor for what happens to us spiritually, the resurrection, and also the burial is part of that spiritual metaphor. Is that something we could talk more about? Or if I was really brave, in that other sermon that we're not preaching today, we could talk about where Jesus was. His body was in the tomb, but where was his spirit? And we could join all of our forefathers in this great debate. Was he in the kingdom of God? Was he in the land of the dead? Was he in Sheol? Was he in hell? What was he doing? We're not going there today and maybe not anytime soon. The point is, this week I realized there's a lot we could explore when it comes to the burial of Christ, but none of those things are things that Mark talks about here. See, Mark's emphasis isn't the significance of the burial or where Jesus was. Mark's goal is to tell us how he was buried and more specifically about the one who buried him. So this morning we're going to get to know a man named Joseph, not the son of Jacob, not the earthly father of Christ, an unlikely disciple. We're going to consider how Christ was honored and God's plan was fulfilled through the faith and courage of an unlikely disciple. So we're in Mark 15, verses 42 to 47. I hope you'll follow along as I read. You'll need your Bibles. The text is not on the screen this morning, so follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. And when evening had come... Since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were saw where he was laid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If there's a downside to preaching through books the way we preach, it's coming to a point like this where we had this huge buildup last week and then we took seven days to forget about it. And now we're back and we need to try to regain the scene. It's late in the afternoon on Friday. Remember what has happened just not long before the sky had gone dark in the middle of the day for three hours from noon until three. 
around three o'clock, Jesus announced his own death with a loud cry. After feeling forsaken, bearing the wrath of God for our sin, he cried out, it's finished. And he gave up his spirit and died. Jesus is dead. Just think about that for a minute. We say it a lot. We don't think about it as much as we should. His body hanging on the cross. The disciples have fled, all abandoning their Lord. We have to imagine at this point, even the mockers are gone. And here's the body of Jesus, left hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And if it was up to the Romans, that's where it would have stayed, for a while at least. See, it wasn't uncommon for them to leave the body of a condemned person hanging on the cross for two, three, four days. It was a form of humiliation, even though they're dead. Let's humiliate them a little more. It was a reminder to everyone of the price of defiance. And of course, what happens when a piece of flesh is there for the taking? Animals would come. It would become a feast for the birds. After a while, if there was anything left, it would be taken down and thrown into a grave of other criminals from previous executions. That's what the Romans would do to the condemned. But sometimes, think about it, most of the time, these guys had done things and no one wanted to be associated with them. But, but sometimes a family member may come and request the body. And sometimes if the person in charge was feeling kind, they would grant the body to the family. But in the case of Jesus, no family came to claim the body. Neither did the 12. But Mark tells us there was this man, Joseph of Arimathea, a man we've never heard about up to this point and whom we will never hear about again after this. But he's the one who goes to Pilate and asks for permission to bury the body of Christ. So who is he? Who is Joseph of Arimathea? Where is Arimathea? We don't know. But we see in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now, that is huge whether you just realized it or not. It's kind of hidden in our translation a little bit. He's a member of the council. Which council? The Sanhedrin. The council that just hours earlier had come together, had convicted, and sentenced Jesus to die. He's a member of that council. That's what Mark tells us. And if we go to the other gospels, we get more information. I usually like to just, let's, let's see what Mark tells us, but we've got to go to the other gospels to learn about Joseph. Luke 23, verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. And listen to this. Who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? He's a part of the Sanhedrin. And yet, he didn't agree with the decision. Which maybe you agree. Makes me want to know more, right? Who is this guy? Up to this point, we have not heard anything positive about the Sanhedrin or the people who are a part of it. But this guy is different. He didn't agree with the decision to send Jesus to death. 
But why not? What we've already heard in Mark and in Luke is that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, let's not jump too far on that because that could have been said most likely of any of the members of the Sanhedrin. These are good Jewish men who knew the scriptures and who were looking for the kingdom of God. But add to that that Jesus, his primary message was the kingdom of God. And it seems like Joseph must have seen more in Jesus or believed more than Jesus than most. And the reason I can say that is because of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph Arimathea, listen to this, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. That changes everything, doesn't it? Who is Joseph of Arimathea? He's a man who must have loved God, who was looking for the kingdom of God, who had heard the teaching of Jesus and believed and was considered by John a disciple. Even when everyone around him, all his peers in the council, hated Jesus and were calling for his death, Joseph saw something different, so much so that he became a follower and a disciple. Matthew says the same thing. When it was the evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. This is an odd man. None of his friends like Jesus. In fact, they killed him. Can you imagine how conflicted he must have been during those days leading up to the cross? He knew the plans in the Sanhedrin. He knew they would kill Jesus. What could he do? And we don't know anything about how he handled himself during those days. Maybe he was trying to wage a secret campaign among his peers. Or maybe he kept his mouth closed knowing that it would be social suicide. We don't know how he handled that. We do know some other things about him, though. The other Gospels tell us, Matthew tells us he was a rich man, a man of means, probably a man of influence, but a man who had not allowed his riches to affect his heart towards God. Remember what Jesus said earlier in Mark? How hard it is for those who have a lot to inherit the kingdom of God? Those who have a lot, and friends, we should probably count ourselves among them. Those who have a lot are often tempted to trust in what they have more than they trust in God. Jesus said it's hard. No, Jesus said it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What we have here is an example of a man in whom God did the impossible. A rich man who was learning to love God. He loved God. He loved Christ more than his reputation. Luke calls him a good and righteous man, which is the exact same words that he used earlier in his gospel to describe Simeon. Remember Simeon? He's the priest that was in the temple when they brought the baby Jesus. He's the one who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Luke says he was a, a good and righteous man or a, a good and devout man. He says the same thing about Joseph of Arimathea. 
It's a pretty good summary. He's a wealthy man, a man of influence. He's well-respected. He honors God with the way he lives. He knows the scriptures and believes the promises of God. And he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And so we can only imagine the struggle he must have had in those days. Should he have tried to stop the Sanhedrin? Could he have? Should he have been more outspoken about what he thought about Christ? We don't know. I will assume that as Jesus was being killed, he was confused, conflicted, and sad. And it's at this point that Joseph does something. And something that the scriptures call courageous. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It took courage, but why? Why would it take courage for him to go to Pilate? You could probably fill in the blank at this point. Remember how everyone in Jerusalem has responded towards Jesus over the last 24 hours. Arrested, called for his death, crowds mocking him, yelling, crucify him. They treated him as a traitor and no doubt would have done the same with anyone who associated with him. How did the rest of the disciples respond during the last 24 hours? They ran for their lives. They knew what it would mean for them to be associated with Christ, so they ran and they hid. These are the 12 who had seen it all. But Joseph, the unlikely disciple, does something different. Joseph decides he's willing to go public. He's willing to risk his reputation, risk his position, risk even his life to honor Christ. But why now? It's dead. Why risk everything for a dead man? I think the Spirit of God was working in his heart. And he knew, I've been silent for too long. I must do something now. He took courage. He went to Pilate. He aligned himself with a convicted and executed man at great risk to himself. And I have to wonder if during that trial, as he bit his lip, perhaps, and during that time as he stood perhaps at a distance and watched people mocking Jesus, maybe he had heard and was thinking of the words of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He may have heard Jesus say that. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here's Joseph, a rich man, a man of means. But Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Joseph knew he's dead. And if he is who he said he was, he is in the presence of God. And now I will be judged. We don't know the thoughts of Joseph. But we do see what he did. When no one else would, he took a stand. 
He was courageous. He went to Pilate. And of course, that courage could have only been given to him by God. John Calvin said this. I put it on your notes because I thought, oh, different one, sorry. Indeed, Joseph exposed himself to the dislike and the hatred of the whole nation and to great dangers. There can be no doubt that this singular courage arose from a secret movement of the Spirit. For though he had formerly been one of Christ's disciples, yet he had never ventured to make a frank and open profession up until now. But now he takes courage. The Gospel of John says he went secretly for fear of the Jews, but surely he knew this would not be a secret for long. He would be seen. There's no covert way to take someone off a cross. But it seems his heart was fixed on honoring Christ, even if it seems like it may have been too late. There wasn't anything obvious that he stood to gain, but he knew this would honor Christ, and so he went. And no doubt, as we think about the courage and the conviction of Joseph, it should push us to consider our own hearts, shouldn't it? And we come to a passage like this, it should be an example. I think if we were to put ourselves in the story, generally we would probably say, we're like the disciples, we're close followers of Jesus, but what did they do? But run. Yet here's Joseph. He should be an example, but I think when we read the scriptures, we can be too quick to say, be like Joseph. Although he's a worthy example. We've got passages like Hebrews 11 that point us to the faith of faithful people. But what I really want to consider, help you consider this morning is that Joseph did what Joseph did because he believed that Jesus was worthy of honor. So my goal this morning is not necessarily to exalt Joseph, but to exalt the one who Joseph saw as worthy of risking his life for. Christ is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of your obedience. He is worthy of your life. And here's the quote that's on your notes. If, through a holy desire to honor Christ, Joseph assumed such courage, while Christ was hanging on the cross, woe to our slothfulness. If now that he is risen from the dead, an equal zeal at least to glorify him does not burn in our hearts. Read that three or four times and let it settle in. There was not much that he stood to gain, it didn't seem. Jesus was dead. And yet he was willing to risk it all. We know so much more than Joseph knew. He has risen. He has given us his spirit. He has promised his eternity. Woe to our slothfulness. Woe to our lack of courage. When we don't see Jesus as worthy of sacrifice. We prefer ourselves and our own comforts over the things of Christ. And church, I fear, maybe don't, we have lacked courage. We have been content in our fight against sin. We become complacent. We give ourselves to the things of the world and we don't think enough about how worthy Christ is of us letting go of everything. 
Oh, that we would work harder in our fight against sin, that we would give ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ, and we would speak boldly of him. May he give us courage to not be complacent about his church and about the lost. That's the first thing we see, that Joseph honored Christ through his courage. He went to Pilate despite the risks. Here's a second thing. Joseph honored Christ by giving him this proper burial. And burial is something that was highly valued by the Jews. In fact, we have examples in the Old Testament of the Jewish people going and burying their enemies. They had slaughtered them, and then they went and buried them because it's right. This was their custom, but even still, what we don't see is a line of people waiting to bury Christ. He was a convicted traitor. And even those who loved him feared doing anything that would risk their own safety. But Joseph counted the cost. He determined that Christ was worthy. He wanted to honor Christ with a proper burial. So he went to Pilate and he asked for the body. Verse 44, verse 45 don't fit neatly into my outline. But we see that he goes to Pilate and Pilate is surprised. Not that Joseph came necessarily, but surprised that Jesus is already dead. I mentioned it earlier and we talked about it last time. Crucifixion was not a quick form of death. It was common for men to hang on the cross and suffer for, for days. But Jesus didn't die on the cross the way most people died. His life wasn't taken. He gave it up. He made an announcement. It's done. And he gave up his spirit. He died more quickly than most. But he suffered more than any other had. He had bore our wrath and taken on the curse for our sin. Point being, Pilate's surprised when Joseph comes so soon and asks for the body because he's not even dead yet, is he? So Pilate sends the centurion, remember the one who afterwards said, behold, this is the son of God. He sends him to go and he asks him, is, is he dead? And he says he, he, he is. And there's a couple of things here that I think we should take just from verses 44 and 45, this interaction between Pilate and Joseph and the centurion. First, this is another proof that we have in the Gospels that Jesus really died. And there are some who want to disprove the resurrection, so they suggest things like, oh, maybe he was just unconscious for a while, he was swooning. Maybe he never really died, he was just in the tomb, he recovered, <laughs> and then he came back out. It's been a common argument throughout the centuries. But here we have a man whose job it was to oversee executions. He knows the difference between dead and faint. He tells Pilate, no, he's dead. Second, we note that Pilate was not under any obligation to release Jesus' body. He could have said no. But here we see the sovereign hand of God. And maybe it's because, remember Pilate? Remember his confliction over Jesus? He never wanted to sentence him to death at all. And maybe this was his way of appeasing his own conscience. Let's give Jesus a proper burial. Joseph wanted to honor Christ, so he requested the body of Christ at a great risk to himself. And then he prepares the body of Christ with great care. Verse 46. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. 
what we know is that he didn't have much time. Jesus dies around 3 o'clock. He has to be buried before sundown. It's the spring. We don't know about daylight savings time, but maybe he had a little. He didn't have long. But he did what he could with the time he had. First, Mark says he bought a linen shroud. Surely he could have just used something that was more convenient, but he was going to honor Christ. He went and he purchased a proper burial cloth. The Gospel of John says that another man, there's another one of those other sermons, talk about Nicodemus, who showed up to help Joseph, another member of the Sanhedrin, actually. Perhaps they met at the cross and exchanged a glance. They were both there. Nicodemus had bought a lot of spices and ointments to anoint the body. There's things we don't know, but I have to assume he buys the cloth. Nicodemus shows up with the ointment. I don't think they wrapped up a bloody body and put it in a tomb. I think they cleansed the body. They anointed it. They wrapped it properly. And then we're told, in verse 46, he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. During this time, there were two primary ways you could bury people. There's the way myself and most of us, we probably would have been buried, which is in a shallow grave. But then there's the way of the upper class who had commissioned caves to be dug out from the sides of hills. Caves that had these shelves carved into them. The dead would be taken, they'd be put in these tombs. And it wasn't their final place because once the body had decomposed, decay was done, they would come in, they would gather the bones, maybe move them to a corner, put them in a box and take them somewhere else. And then the tomb would be reused in the next generation. What we see is that Jesus, who the Bible says never had a place to lay his head, was taken by Joseph, a rich man, and given a burial fit for a king. Not only was he buried in a tomb, which was a sign of the elite, but he was buried in a tomb that had never been used. Verse John 19, 41, the place where he was crucified was in a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever laid. Perhaps Joseph had had this built for himself. He had achieved a lot in life, and he was going to give himself a proper burial, so he had this tomb saved. But instead of saving it for himself and keeping it unstained, he gave it to Jesus. I think all this points to the fact that this is a man who was intent on honoring Christ. He prepared his body with great care. He buried him in a new tomb at great expense to himself. And it was all in fulfillment of the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 9, he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What's he saying? He died with criminals, wicked people. He went to the grave with them. He died alongside of them and was with a rich man in his death. Another thing that should strengthen our faith. So much of what Jesus did fulfilled the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, again, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, 
which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. When Jesus died, the way he died, the way he was buried, the way he rose, it all fulfills the Scriptures. This is proof to us that it is true that he is who he said he is. And we should be humbled by the conviction of Joseph and the links he went to in order to honor Christ. It's possible that for a time he had been timid. He may not have stood up for Christ at the trial. As Jesus was beaten and led to the cross, he may have watched in silence. Maybe his faith had been weak for a time. Maybe he was held back by fear. But what we see is that in the end, he was willing to put himself at great risk to honor Christ. And here's what I want us to leave with this morning. Jesus is worth that kind of risk. He's worth that kind of sacrifice. He's worthy of your life lived in a way that pleases him, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's unpopular. Let me go back and remember, Joseph did not know that Jesus would rise. All he knew at this point, we assume, is that Jesus was dead. To associate Jesus would cost him a lot. But what was to be gained? He would lose friends. He would lose status. He may even lose his life. But he believed that Jesus was worthy. Our situation is different than Joseph's. We know Jesus lives. We know the benefits of living for him. And yet we are still often held back by fear. Unwilling to do hard things for the sake of Christ. And so it is my hope this morning that we be encouraged by Joseph's efforts to honor Christ. Think about this. Do you think Joseph had any concept when he decided, this is what I must do? He had no concept, I don't think, of the way that God was using his obedience. That his efforts would become a central part of the gospel story. And the same could be said of us if we step out with faith and courage. We may not know the impact that our decision to honor Christ could have. God may choose to use your obedience in ways that you never would have imagined to impact others. He could use your obedience, your honesty at work, your faithfulness with your children, your willingness to proclaim the gospel to that coworker. He may use these things to impact generations. He may use your example of faithfulness in the midst of hard things to propel others to faith and obedience. I was just heard a story recently about a Sunday school teacher who leads a guy to Christ in the 1700s, and actually a guy who spoke at my conference was the great-great-grandson of this guy who was saved through a missionary in China. It's a whole big story right? But a Sunday school teacher shares the gospel. Someone goes to the mission field, 
churches are started, generations are changed. God uses our obedience in ways that we may not foresee. So church, may we see him as worthy and live for him even if it's costly. And know this, you don't do it in your own strength. It's through Christ and his grace. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He empowers it because he died, we're dead to sin. Because he was buried, the old man is buried. Because he rose, we can raise to new life. Let's go back two weeks. Let me tell you again. You should all be preachers. Preach good sermons. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself that Jesus was, he died, he was buried, he rose again. And because of what he did, you can live today and tomorrow in a way that pleases him. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Because of his spirit in you. Joseph did not have the same benefits we have. We know more than he knew. But he left a testimony for us. And while the scriptures make it clear that almost everyone else abandoned Christ, Joseph wasn't the only one who stayed close. We're almost done. But look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Remember last week at his crucifixion, we were told, Mark told us, there's these women who are close by watching. Now we're told there's these women who were there and they saw where he was buried. Next week, we're going to see that they were some of the first to see him after his resurrection. And I want to suggest that their faithfulness too is an example. It's another proof that the account of Jesus is true. If this story was made up, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if these guys all came together to concoct a story. Let's just be honest about the time in which they wrote. They would not have used ladies as the key witnesses. That wouldn't have wouldn't gone anywhere. That wouldn't have been helpful to their cause. Oh, but God values women. <laughs> and he had them there as witnesses. They're the ones he used and if we go back to what we said earlier, they had no idea how their obedience would be used to impact so many. It's because of their testimony that we have what we have. We see that they loved Jesus and they were committed to staying near him even until the end. Oh, that our testimony and our legacy would be a love for Jesus that keeps us close to him even when everyone else turns away. I want to end by pointing you again to him. In the stories, we, in the scriptures, we do have these stories of incredible faith. Stories of how God used people for his good purposes. But the hero of the story is Christ. To read the account of his death and burial should leave us stunned and humbled. Was it last week we were in, maybe the week before we were in Acts chapter 3, if you're reading through the Bible with us? I always stop at this verse and just don't know how to get past it. Peter says to a group of Jews, you denied the holy and righteous one 
and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. The author of life. Lifeless and hanging on a cross, being taken down and prepared for burial, being carried to a tomb where he would lie alone. So we think about Friday. The body is cold and still. Saturday, Saturday night, the God of life laying lifeless in a tomb. It reminds me of the words we sing together. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone. Messiah still and all alone. Here's another one. There in the grave his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. should leave us stunned to think about the death and the burial of our Lord. And it should leave us humbled as we consider all that he did for us. Because he died and was buried, you can be forgiven of your sins. Because he died and was buried, you can walk in freedom. Because he died and was buried, you can forgive others. Because he died and was buried, you can have the hope of life. For now, we'll leave him, in a sense, in the grave for another week. but you know he doesn't stay there. He will rise, and next week we'll consider his resurrection. Until then, may we strive to honor him no matter the cost. He is worthy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Joseph of Arimathea, this one who, despite all odds, in him you did the impossible. You changed his heart. You drew him to yourself. You used him as an example to us of love for Jesus and sacrifice. And I pray that as we see his example, our eyes will be turned to the one whom he saw worthy of that kind of risk. Would you turn our eyes to your son? And we use a vision of him and who he is to change us. Would you make us faithful? In the name of Jesus, amen.